Well, good morning. My name is Adam. If we haven't met yet, I'm part of the team here, and it's great to have you with us today, whether you're here in the building or whether you're joining us online. Like Ben said, welcome to our first ever 8 a.m. service. Yeah, we can clap again. That's wonderful. You'll always be able to say, I was at the first ever 8 a.m. service at Bray Park Community Church. You know, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them to Acts chapter 1 if you haven't done so already. This is where we'll be uh, spending our time today. We'll be focusing in on verses 1 to 11. Now, while you're turning there, I just wanted to let you know that yesterday we had a meeting with all of the churches in our denomination in the state of Queensland. And part of that meeting was uh, Ben's final exam to be ordained as a, a reverend, a minister within the Christian Reformed Churches of Australia. Now, I'm very thankful to let you know that Ben passed with flying colours. <laughs> so very soon we'll have a service and, and we'll ordain Ben and then from then on you'll have to call him Reverend Ben. Congratulations, mate. We are very, very uh, thankful for you and grateful for you and happy for you. And we just love having you as part of our church family. And we look forward to having you uh, serve us and and serve alongside us for many years to come. I'd like to pray for us and then we'll uh, dive into God's word. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that this morning you might lead us to Jesus in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and salvation are found. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You know, we have a complicated relationship with sequels, don't we? Sequels. They're often a little bit, a little more than a cash grab by movie studios, which is why sequels, more often than not, are not quite as good as the original. So, for example... Home Alone started out pretty well, but it went downhill very fast after number two. Cars was great. Cars 2 was a car crash. And then, of course, there's Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, which I know is not technically a sequel. It's a prequel, but it's so bad that it deserves a mention. But, of course, not all sequels are bad. Sometimes the sequel can actually be better than the original. For example, I think we'd all agree, if you've seen it, that The Dark Knight is better than Batman Begins. Or The Godfather Part 2 is generally considered better than Part 1. And then I think, maybe this is a controversial opinion, but I think Toy Story 3 is the best of the lot. I don't think I've ever been so close to tears in a kid's movie before. Now the reason I bring this up is because the book of the Bible, which we're looking at this term, The book of Acts in the New Testament, it is a sequel. It's the second installment. It's the story continued. Now, which story? The story of Jesus. You know, a man named Luke, who was not one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he was a doctor, he was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, he writes a two-volume work on the story of Jesus. The first volume is the Gospel of Luke. And the second volume is the book of Acts. Now, the first volume, the Gospel of Luke, is all about the life of Jesus, all that he said and did while he was on earth, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And the book of Acts tells us about 
what happened next? If Luke is about Jesus on earth, then Acts is about Jesus in heaven. This is how Acts begins in verse one. This is what Luke says. He says, in my former book, the the gospel of Luke, Theophilus, now he's writing to a man named Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus. He was probably wealthy. He might've even sponsored Luke to write these two works. And he'd come to faith in Jesus at some point. And so Luke is writing to give him certainty about the things he'd been taught. So he says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In other words, the implication is that Acts, the second volume, it's all about what Jesus continued to do and to teach. Acts is Jesus, the sequel. It's Jesus continued. It's the story of what Jesus continued to do in the world through the apostles, his authorized messengers, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the good news is that the story is not over. The movie is not finished. The credits have not yet started to roll. Jesus is still working in the world today and we get to be part of what he's doing. This is what Jesus says to the disciples in chapter one. Before his return to heaven, the disciples are huddled around Jesus and they're wondering what's gonna happen next. They thought it might be the end of the story and so they asked Jesus, is this it? Is this full time? Are you going to wrap everything up? And Jesus says to them, no, no, no. It's just getting started. This is what he says in verse eight. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, this is probably the key verse in the book of Acts. It is central to everything else that happens. In fact, it's even kind of like a table of contents for the book. I mean, this is exactly the structure of the book. The story begins in Jerusalem, and this happens in chapters one to seven, which is what we'd be looking at this term. But then it begins to move out into Judea and Samaria. That's chapters eight to nine. And then it begins to move out to the ends of the earth, which we see in chapters 10 to 28. And the story makes it all the way to Rome. In fact, the book ends with the Apostle Paul in prison in Rome. It's a really interesting way to end the book, but it's telling us that the story is not yet finished. Now, Rome was the center of the ancient world. You know, the saying goes that all roads lead to Rome. Well, it's also true that all roads led from Rome. And so if the gospel was to take root in Rome, which it did, then it would spread to the ends of the earth, which it did. In fact, I heard this week that the furthest geographical point from Jerusalem is New Zealand. New Zealand, which is just a little bit below us in every sense of the word. (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding. We love our Kiwi brothers and sisters. Now, we're not actually that far from New Zealand, are we? I mean, we're about as far, about the ends of the earth as you can get. And yet here we are, gathered together to worship Jesus. Because Jesus is still at work in the world today. And the story is not over yet. And so this is why we're doing this series. This is what we hope we'll all come to recognize through this series, that we're all part of an unfinished story and an ongoing mission. That we are called to be Jesus' witnesses in our day and in our community.
community. And we don't want to just be spectators, we want to be participants. Jesus is too great, the news is too good, and the future is too bright for us to just sit on the sidelines or to make up the numbers. I love the way that Ray Ortland puts it, a pastor that I listen to regularly. He says, there is only one cause in all the world today that will still matter a bazillion years from now. You can be involved and on terms of grace. You can bring your weakness to the table and the risen Christ brings his spirit to the table and you walk away clothed with power from on high to promote a kingdom that has no end. It's beautiful and it's inspiring, isn't it? But if we're honest, it can also be a little bit intimidating. I mean, I'm sure you're thinking right now, Adam, I I agree with you. Of course, I want my life to count. But you don't understand. My past is messy. My life is busy. I'm tired. I'm not equipped. I don't know enough. I'm not eloquent enough. Now, that's understandable. This is how we all think. But what we see repeatedly in the Bible, and especially in the book of Acts, is that God doesn't use the exceptional, which is great news for me. See, God uses the available. I mean, those in the book of Acts, those in the early church, they were just like us. They were fearful. They made mistakes. They had doubts. But it didn't disqualify them. And it didn't stop God from using them because God specializes in using weakness. And so this series is an invitation from God to you and to me to be involved in what he's doing. Not because we're exceptional or brilliant or excellent, but simply because he is gracious and he is willing to use even us. And so I'm really looking forward to this journey in Acts. And today we're going to begin in Acts chapter 1, as I said. And there's really a single question that dominates this chapter. And it's the question, what now? What's next? I mean, I wonder if you've ever got to a point in your life where you've thought to yourself, what now? What do I do next? This is exactly where Jesus' disciples are at. Jesus is risen, he's about to return to heaven, and they're wondering, what's next? What's going to happen? What will we do without him? This is the question that's given an answer in this chapter. And what we see is that there are really two things that the disciples need to know if they are going to step into what's next, if they are going to move into the future that God has for them. And it's these same two things that you and I need to know if we are going to step into what's next, if we're going to move into the future that God has for us. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that the disciples need to know, the first answer to the question is this, is that we have a living Saviour. We have a living saviour. See, Jesus is not just a figure of ancient history. Jesus is alive and accessible and knowable. This is what we see here in chapter one. In fact, there are three great claims about Jesus that we see in this chapter. The first is this. It's that Jesus is risen. Look with me at verse three, what we read there. After his suffering, this is Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them, to the apostles, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. 
So after his resurrection, which we looked at a few weeks ago in Luke's gospel, Jesus appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days, and he gave them many convincing proofs. We know that this means, we see it elsewhere in the gospels, that he ate breakfast with them. He wasn't just a floating spirit, he ate some fish in front of them. He talked with them, he taught them, they hugged him, they touched him, they saw his scars, they witnessed the risen Jesus. And this helps to explain the radical transformation of the disciples. I mean, do you remember a few weeks ago when Jesus was arrested? They could not get away from Jesus quick enough. They scurried away like rats off a sinking ship. They did not want to suffer with Jesus, so they ran away from Jesus. And yet now, just a short time later, the disciples will be beaten up, locked up, and even killed for their claim that Jesus is risen from the grave. Now, what explains this radical transformation? The only logical explanation is that they had witnessed the risen Jesus, that they were utterly convinced about what they'd seen, what they'd heard, what they'd touched. They knew it to be true, and they were willing to die for it. This is the foundation of the Christian faith, that Jesus is not dead, but alive. Now, you might be wondering, if Jesus really is risen, if Jesus really is alive, then if he really did conquer death and get out of the grave, then where is he? Why isn't he still around? This leads us to the second thing we see about Jesus in this chapter, and that is that Jesus is reigning. Not R-A-I-N, but R-E-I-G-N. Reigning and ruling. See, after appearing to the disciples for 40 days, giving them their, their marching orders, we read this in verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their, their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, let's just be honest. This is a bit of a crazy moment. Doesn't happen every day. Someone kind of you know, floating into the, the sky. But that's just the point. This is a significant moment in God's plan of salvation. This is what theologians call the ascension of Jesus. And it's really important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it tells us what Jesus is doing right now, today. It tells us that Jesus has been enthroned in heaven. Now notice that Jesus is enveloped by a cloud. Now in the Bible, God's presence is often symbolized by a cloud. This is telling us that Jesus is returning to his Father in heaven. And he's not just returning to hang out for a little while before he comes back. He is returning to reign. This is what we read in 1 Peter chapter 3. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Jesus is reigning and ruling right now. And his rule is a little bit like gravity. It's unseen, but it's real. And this leads us to the second thing that we see about Jesus' ascension. Firstly, he's enthroned in heaven, he's reigning and ruling, and this means that Jesus is now able and available to save us. When we call on Jesus, when we put our trust in him, we're not just talking to the clouds. We are calling on a living saviour. It's what Hebrews tells us about Jesus in chapter seven. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is always available to us because Jesus always lives to intercede for us, to help us, to support us, to save us. I mean, the heart of the Christian message is not, 
obey the teaching of this interesting historical figure. The heart of the Christian message is put your trust in this living Savior. He is able, available, and willing to save you. You see, the good news is that Jesus is risen. Jesus is reigning, but that's not the end of the good news. Because we also see here in this chapter that Jesus is returning. We see this in verses 10 to 11. Look at what we read. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so the disciples are standing around, staring into heaven, as you probably would be, a little bit dumbfounded. And this angel comes to reassure them and say, it's okay, he'll be back. It's kind of like when I leave home sometimes and my kids get a little bit upset, I have to say to them, it's okay, I'll be back. Now, how should we respond to this truth, this truth that Jesus is returning? Well, we should not try to guess when it's going to happen. Put away the charts, stop the predictions. Jesus makes this very clear in verse 7. We don't know the times and the seasons. But nor should we kind of do what the disciples do and sit around staring into heaven. We shouldn't kick back or check out. No, we should get moving and we should get busy because we have work to do. We ought to be witnesses to Jesus. I mean, if Jesus really is returning to bring salvation and to bring judgment, then our task is incredibly urgent. I really like the way that John Stott puts it in his commentary. He says, the vision that they, the disciples, were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. And it's the same for us. We're not to kind of stand around looking into heaven, just waiting for Jesus to come back. We had to look around to a world which needs Jesus and to go into the world with the message about him. And this leads us to the second thing that we need to know if we're going to move into what's next, if we're going to step into the future. Firstly, we have a living saviour. We're not just calling on the clouds, we're calling on a a saviour who is risen, reigning and returning. And secondly, we have a powerful helper. We have a powerful helper. Now, I've got to admit that what Jesus does here seems a little bit crazy. I mean, he's just paid for sins, defeated death, risen from the grave. You would think now's the time to go on a worldwide preaching tour, to write a book, to start a podcast, to host a conference. And yet, Jesus just leaves. He says to the disciples, over to you. Now, I can imagine the angels in heaven looking at the Father and going, Really? You're going to leave them in charge? I can imagine the disciples saying, what now, Jesus? The ends of the earth? Have you seen how big the world is? And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, I can see how big it is. I mean, he would th- you don't even know how big it is. But it'll be okay. Now, why can Jesus do this? How can he leave like this? How can he leave this task in the hands of his followers? And the answer is because he wouldn't leave them alone. You know, a number of times before his departure, Jesus had made the apostles a big promise. And we see it in verse four, verse four and five. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. 
for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus promises to send another helper, the Holy Spirit. Now remember, these disciples, they had been with Jesus for three years. They'd been taught by Jesus, instructed by Jesus. They'd gone to the university of Jesus, heard his teaching, witnessed his miracles, had on-the-job training. But evidently, even this superb training wasn't enough. They needed power from on high. They needed the presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God. And the truth is, so do we. Our task is too big, the opposition is too fierce, and our weakness is too deep for us to do this on our own. We need help, which is exactly what God gives us, the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to see the fulfillment of this promise next week in chapter 2, when when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers through the event we know as Pentecost. And so we'll talk more about this next week, but let me just point out one important truth this week, and that is the reason that the Spirit has been poured out which is to make us effective witnesses to Jesus. This is what Jesus says in verse eight. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. To put it another way, we are filled with the Spirit so that our mouths might be filled with the message about Jesus, so that our lives might begin to look a little bit more like Jesus. And this is what we see happen right throughout the book of Acts. The apostles are transformed into bold, fearless witnesses to Jesus. And you and I have been called to the same task, to be witnesses to Jesus. I mean, the question is not, are you a witness? The question is, what type of witness are you? The question is not, if you are sent, the question is, where have you been sent? Now, what does a witness do? Well, a witness's job is not really to do anything. A witness's job is to tell people about what's already been done. A witness's job is to testify to what they've seen and heard. Now, of course, we haven't seen the risen Jesus with our own eyes, but our faith is built upon the testimony of those who have, the apostles, the witnesses to the resurrected and risen Jesus. Now, again, I know this might sound daunting, but there's something here that we need to realize, and it's really important. When Jesus says to the disciples, he says, you will be my witnesses, the you is plural. It's something they are to do together. And it's something we are to do together. Being a witness to Jesus is a team game. It's not just a one-off event, it's not just a course, it's a culture, it's a lifestyle. It's something we do together and it's something we never stop doing which is the temptation as the church grows, it's it's to stop looking outward at the mission field and it's to begin to look exclusively inward. And I think about it a little bit like the difference between a cruise ship and a life-saving boat. Yeah, they're both boats, they both float on water, but they couldn't be more different. The mission of a cruise ship is to please its patrons. Everything is designed with the customer in mind. The entire experience is about meeting their needs. And success is measured by the approval of those being served. The mission is for people to be pleased and to come back. But a life-saving boat is different. Everything on a life-saving boat is connected to a life-saving mission. The way it's designed, the way it's built, it's accessories. People on board are not driven by their own wants and desires, but rather by the needs of those who are in trouble. And success is measured by lives saved. The mission is for people to be rescued and to be brought back to shore. 
And I think it begs us to ask the question, what's my attitude to the church? More like a, a cruise ship where I, where I come to, to get needs met? Or more like a life-saving boat where, where I come to be part of a mission? You see, we, we, we don't want to float through life focused only on ourselves. We don't want to sit on deck chairs just staring into heaven. We want to look around out to a world that needs Jesus and we want to be a church that's on mission. We want to be witnesses to Jesus in our community and we want to do it together for God's glory. So we're really excited and thankful to be starting two morning services. We've been working really hard to make this happen, but we're not doing it to make ourselves feel good. We're doing it because we want more people to find life in Jesus. You know, later this year, we're also really excited to launch a new expression of our mission and vision and values. Later this year, at the start of term three, we'll be celebrating 30 years of ministry here on this campus. And we're gonna look back and we're gonna give thanks to God for all that he's done. We're also gonna look forward for the next 30 years. We're gonna ask, what's our purpose? What are some goals that we have? What is God leading us to do? And whatever the specifics might be, the main thing is that we have been called to be witnesses to Jesus in our day for his glory. And I know it might be daunting, scary, intimidating, but we need to remember we have a living saviour. We have a powerful helper, which means we have a message and a mission that is unstoppable. And so I wanna thank you for being part of what God is doing here. We are just one small, small part of God's worldwide mission but every single part matters to God. And you know, the story is not over yet. The credits haven't started rolling. But we know how the story ends. And so we can keep moving forward together because our living saviour and our powerful helper is with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace to us. We thank you for the gift of your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus, and the gift of our powerful helper, the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that we might move forward humbly and with great dependence on you. We pray that we might not sit on deck chairs staring into heaven, but we might be involved and engaged in your mission to see more people find the life that is truly life that is found only in Jesus. So Lord, as we now go from here today, we pray that you might lead us by your spirit, that you might use us as your people for your glory. We thank you for this wonderful church community we can be a part of. And we ask and we pray that you might continue to use us for your glory and the good many more people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.